Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss John's birth and the Benedictus in Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Once again, we want to remind you about our new book, Theopolitan Liturgy, written by Peter Lightheart. To get more information and to purchase this book from Theopolis Books, there's a link down there in the show notes for you, as well as a link to sign up for Immediate Race, our weekly newsletter. And when you sign up for our newsletter, you'll get a free ebook from Peter Lightheart on Pedro Communion. With that, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope that you are encouraged and sharpened by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing John's birth and the Benedictus. We are in the middle of the Advent season, and we began several weeks ago, a couple weeks before the Advent season started, to do a series of podcasts having to do with the Advent season and with the coming of the Lord in the flesh. Advent is the traditional season that uh, precedes the Christmas season. Historically, it's been a four-week season. The four weeks before Christmas are celebrated as a commemoration of the coming of the Lord uh, the readings in the various lectionaries have to do with the Lord's arrival in the flesh with Jesus' birth, with the preparation for Jesus' birth. Uh, they have to do with various forms of the Lord's coming. So many of the Advent readings not only have to do with the the first coming of Christ, but with his final coming that we are still anticipating. And so there's a, a link between the, the initial arrival uh, of salvation in Christ and the final salvation that he'll bring at the last day. Uh, and there are passages that have to deal with historical judgments and visitations uh, that uh, occur throughout the scriptures and throughout history. And all of those are brought under the uh, heading of Advent. And the, the readings and the, the message of Advent is this um, rich understanding of the Lord's coming in these, in these various forms. The Lord comes to us in many times and in many ways. And, uh, comes for salvation and judgment. Now, one thing we might talk about right at the beginning, uh, we've, we've talked about this before, but um, for those who are listening to the podcast and are not used to celebrating uh, the church year, it might be worthwhile to spend a little bit of time talking about why we would celebrate a particular season like this, which is not a biblically mandated season. We're not mandated to celebrate even Christmas or Easter. Most Christians do. Uh, but we're not mandated to um, to uh, uh, celebrate these other seasons of the church. They are traditional seasons. Uh, they're celebrating events that are recorded in Scripture, but the celebration of those events is not mandated. So um, I'll pose the question to the two of you, uh, Alistair and Jeff. Um, what do you say to skeptical people who say uh, the, these are these are traditional seasons and we shouldn't shouldn't have anything to do with these? We don't need these seasons. <laughs> well, the first thing I say is there's a lot that we do in the church that we don't need. I mean, it's not necessary. It's not necessary for us to preach through books of the Bible, uh, you know, paragraph by paragraph, but we do it. It's not, it's not necessary that we order our services according to themes uh, with hymns and prayers and scripture readings. But this is something 
that we do, and it's wise for the church to do that. There are some things I, obviously, when we come into Lord's presence, are mandated, um, but a certain sequence of events and scripture readings and uh, exposition of scripture and Lord's supper and benediction, things like that. But the other, uh, the content uh, of the service is given to uh, the church to decide in its wisdom how it's going to order these things, how it's going to present uh, the gospel uh, in its readings. And so, you know, just like there's no mandate that we preach through Romans, there's no mandate that we order the church here according to the life of Christ, but it certainly is a wise and good thing to do. I can see a couple of immediate advantages to the practice. I think the first thing to note is that it represents the salvation that we enjoy as a matter of events in history. And it's very easy, particularly within a reform context, to think about our salvation in these very abstract categories. But yet, when we celebrate the church calendar, it reminds us that we are saved on account of events that happened in space-time. At a particular point in history, God acted in the fullness of time. And as a result of that, um, we are brought into the body of Christ, etc. The other thing I think it does is it encourages us to think and to read typologically. Noted the connection between Advent as a season looking forward to the first coming of Christ, but then also Advent as a season when we're anticipating the final coming of Christ and other comings of Christ in history, perhaps. And that way of connecting events, of living our lives over a course of a year, where the rhythms of the year are accompanied with particular remembrances of times in history and God's action in history, I think it helps us to map our lives and our events and our experience and our place and position within time onto the larger pattern and rhythms of God's history. And in that sense, it is a training in typological reading of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to mark time. Someone's going to uh, redeem the time, if you will. Uh, and right now, the temporal cycles have been co-opted by the state and by uh, economics or politics. Um, I think it's important for the church to reclaim the temporal cycles as ways in which God instructs and guides and shapes our minds and hearts, all the way back to Genesis 1.14, where God set the lights in the heavens to um, not just to be clocks, not just to... uh, dates, but also for festival times. And uh, that's, that's something that's, that's uh, significant in the old world, but also for us in the new world as well, because we're still living in the created world and enmeshed in this time and the cycles of seasons. Yeah, and it would be too much to say that the gospel requires the celebration of these seasons, but it is, an, uh, it is a way of celebrating the reality of the gospel that Jesus is Jesus is Lord of the ages, and he places his stamp on time in a very concrete way. That is to say, he changed the calendar <laughs> in the obvious way that every every Christian marks by saying there's a there's an age before Christ, and then there's an age that's the year of our Lord. Uh, but then in in a church that's celebrating a fuller church calendar, 
uh, the life of Jesus is imprinted on the cycles of the year. Every year we're moving through the, the life of Jesus from the Annunciation of His birth and Advent through Christmas, His appearances at Epiphany, His suffering and death, His resurrection, the gift of the Spirit, and so on. So uh, that's a, it's a way of acknowledging that Jesus is Lord of time. And I, I was going to say too, Jeff, you mentioned the, the pastoral wisdom of it. I think if I had to identify two sources of my knowledge of the uh, the, the uh, birth stories, particularly in Luke, one of them would be uh, growing up in the Lutheran Church and going to Advent services and hearing the uh, hearing the Advent readings over and over throughout the years. Uh, the other one, of course, would be Peanuts, uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas, where you have the, the scene where Linus <laughs> the early part of Luke too. And what child could watch that every year and not end up memorizing the story of the, the Annunciation to the Shepherds? That's, uh, that's, I suppose Handel comes in there somehow. But uh, our focus today is on Luke chapter 1, the last part of Luke chapter 1. Uh, we're beginning in verse 57 and going through the end of the chapter. And we've looked at the Annunciation scenes that begin the chapter, these parallel Annunciation scenes, the first beginning with Gabriel appearing to Zacharias and announcing the birth of John, and then the appearance of Gabriel to Mary announcing the birth of Jesus. And then last time we looked at the uh, the visit that Mary pays to Elizabeth and the Song of Mary that we know as the Magnificat. There are these two Annunciation scenes that are parallel to each other in uh, various ways that we've already noticed. Uh, and then you have two parallel birth scenes, uh, one having to do, it, we'll look at this week, with the birth of John the Baptist to Zacharias and Elizabeth, and then next week, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. You have these panel structures going on that are bring, uh, Luke is bringing out the similarities between John and Jesus, their similarity in their annunciation, their birth, and then, of course, the connection of their ministry. G- John is the forerunner. Uh, you could say John is the forerunner for a greater prophet like John. He's the foreshadowing of a greater John uh, who brings in the kingdom. <laughs> Let me call attention to a feature of this narrative from 57 to 66, which I find interesting. And that is there's this back and forth uh, in this text between Elizabeth, the mother of John, and the relatives and the neighbors, and then the father, and then back again to the mother, and then the relatives, and then the father, um, and then, uh, uh, but this this uh, interesting thing that Luke brings out about the neighbors and the relatives in the hill country of Judea all participating in the uh, in the naming of this child. Um, it's rather surprising. Uh, I wonder again if Luke is calling attention to the fact that there are a host of believers in the old covenant sense of the word um, that um, heard these things and accepted them. It's, I mean, you, you have the parallel, like you mentioned earlier, Peter, you have this uh, parallel with uh, the birth of Jesus. When Jesus is born, he's taken into the temple, and all of a sudden we are. Uh, in the presence of Simeon and Anna and all of these people who are waiting for the redemption of uh, Jerusalem uh, in 238. Uh, it seems that Luke is wanting Theopolis, not Theopolis, uh, Theophilus, sorry, very similar. <laughs> 
it seems like he wants him to recognize that there are faithful Jews. Um, and I'll come back to what I said earlier, because Luke is following around Paul, and the Gentiles are seeing how uh, how most of the Jews out of Jerusalem are really disrespectful and hateful to the to Jesus and to his apostles. And those parallels between the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus, I think, are important for connecting the two characters. You have the same, similar sorts of expressions concerning the shepherds and the report that they bring concerning the sign of seeing Jesus in the manger and the people around wondering at the meaning of what has just occurred. And so both of them have very significant um there's very significant events occurring around their birth and there's an auspicious sign associated with both and both of them lead to a lot of questioning and wondering and um, pondering among the people in the regions. Yeah, I think that's a the, that's an important uh, note that you highlighted there, Jeff, with the, uh, I, I mentioned this as, talked about this as the birth of John the Baptist, which happens in verse 57. But most of the passage is not about the birth. That's taken care of in a couple of verses. And then there is, as Alistair said, there's this joy that the neighbors and relatives share with the, Elizabeth with the birth of her son, which is the joy that they share because of her birth in old age and out of barrenness. Uh, they don't yet recognize exactly what's significant, the significance of this birth. But most of the passage is not about the, not about the birth itself, but about the naming which occurs at the time of the circum of John's circumcision, and there I think it's interesting that the uh, the relatives and uh, neighbors they are advocating for a traditional name. You know, uh, he should be named for his father. There's no one. There's no one among your relatives or ancestors who has the name John, and we should we should use something that uh, connects them to that heritage. Uh, Zechariah insists on this new name, uh, John or Johannes. Yohana, which would mean uh, Yah is gracious, and uh, perhaps uh, alludes back to the to the story of Samuel that we've been uh, talking about all through these uh, through these through these chapters, the, the birth of Samuel, and John's name actually contains a Greek version of uh, the the name of Samuel's mother. So the 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 neighbors and relatives are they're faithful. I agree. I agree with you. I agree with you, Jeff. But they're also uh, they're looking for something that's in continuity with with this old heritage that Zechariah has. And Zechariah insists on the name that the angel gave him, which is a, a new name and a mark of the newness of what John the Baptist is bringing. That's right. But then immediately when Zechariah composes his, his psalm or his uh, Benedictus, he connects it back with uh, the tradition of God's work through Abraham, through his covenant, um, so that it's new, but it's a fulfillment of the old. I'm, you know, we're going to be talking about that in a moment anyway, but um, uh, it's both and. Yeah, it's uh, to N.T. Wright's point about the there's a covenant continuity, and yet there's this surprising twist with the gospel. Uh, it, it it fulfills the promise to Abraham, but it does it in a way that we that uh, people weren't anticipating, and it can be seen as a fulfillment kind of only in retrospect, you know. Once it happens, you say, "Oh yes, that's a, of course that's what was going to happen." But there's a there's a kind of surprising novelty to it. I've been struck for a long time about the the silence of Zechariah, and I've thought about it in connection with Zechariah's 
role as a priest. Priests, among other things, are supposed to be teachers. That's a statement that's uh, made in, in Malachi, and Malachi has been in play here in the early chapters of Luke. Uh, and then you have a, a priest who's silent. I've thought of that as maybe a, a sign of, you know, may, maybe going back to, again to a Samuel, a Samuel typology where the word of the Lord is rare in Israel at the time, and the silence of Zechariah the priest is a sign of that. Um, I'm curious what, what you think about that. And then the other thing that's striking is that his tongue is loosed and his mouth is opened at the moment that he uh, obeys the angel's instruction to call his name John. He insists on it against his relatives and neighbors, writes down the name John, and then his tongue is loosed. And again, the, his tongue is loosed and he begins to praise. That's what's happening. Everybody who hears this news um, begins to sing or to praise God and is filled with the Spirit and begins to prophesy as Zechariah does. But I'm wondering what you all think about the the silence of uh, the muteness of Zechariah uh, during the time of Elizabeth's pregnancy and you know, before John's birth. It doesn't seem to be just muteness. There also seems to be deafness as well. Um, they have to make signs to the father in um, verse 62, which suggests that he can't just hear them. Um, so there's a twofold judgment. He can't speak and he can't hear. Do you think this is representative of Israel in some uh, sense? That, yeah, that's been my thought. Time? That uh, uh, as a priest, he, he in some way embodies the nation and his muteness. I hadn't thought about deafness. That's an, that's an important dimension of it. And if, if you had that combination, then uh, that would, that would kind of reinforce it that you, uh, this announcement is made to a people. Uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to miss the point that you keep making Jeff, which is it's really important that there, there are faithful Jews who receive this news with gladness, but Zechariah is part of the, the hierarchy. He's, he's part of the, uh, the the priestly leadership, and I yeah I, I wonder if it, it represents the the deafness of Israel, their uh, the failure of the priests to instruct the people, and that's maybe anticipating things that are going to happen uh, through the rest of the gospel, where uh, you have the the uh, scribes, Pharisees, and priests who are opposed to Jesus, and I think too you you think about the this is a the first if he's if he's deaf and mute. This is the first of several deaf mutes that Jesus heals. And if you look at the Gospels as a whole, uh, and uh, he's being given voice and he is allowed, he's able to hear, he's being restored to a, a proper priestly role. And that's a sign that Israel too is going to be restored. I think also there's something of a pattern between the beginning of Luke and the very end of Acts. The very end of Acts is about the people's heart having grown dull, their ears can barely hear, their eyes have being closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn I would and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. That they will listen. Um, and then the bold proclamation of Paul after that. So there seems to be a contrast and a contrast between the bold proclamation of Paul and others and the dullness and the muteness of Israel. But then also, on the other hand, their failure to hear and the failure of um, Zechariah to hear. If we look back again in the story of Eli, there is a threefold parallel between the eyes of the high priest, the revelation, um, the word of the Lord was not heard, and the lamp of the lamp had not yet gone out, but presumably was about to go out. 
And so those three things connected together, I think, suggest that the um, faculties of the priest are symbolic of the spiritual state of the nation more generally. It's fair to say that even during the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus, that although there were believers, uh, those who were not enemies, not um, not antagonistic, nevertheless, they often couldn't hear. Of course, the all, all the disciples had to have things explained to them, and then even uh, as time went on, they still didn't get it until the Spirit is poured out, um, and they never quite are able to put it all together. So, um, and that's a perspective we often miss when we're reading the Gospels, that it's not just black and white, regenerate and unregenerate. Uh, there are those who we would call regenerate who still have lots of trouble figuring out what's going on because what's going on is something striking, surprising, something new in continuity, as N.T. Wright says, with uh, God's covenant promises, but not expected. Right. And, and it's a, it, you know, I think of the incident where Jesus heals the blind man in two stages. He can see, but he sees people around him like trees walking. And then there's a second stage and he comes to see. And in the, it's, in the context in Mark, at least, that's a, that's a preview of what's happening to the disciples as they're coming to sight, but not clear sight, not yet. Then they're going to come to clear sight later. Let's talk about uh, Zechariah's uh, song, which we sing it uh, in the liturgy as the Benedictus. Um, I already mentioned that he's was filled with the Spirit. We we talked before about the role of the Spirit in the beginning of I'm uh, sorry, the role of the Spirit in the beginning of Luke here, anticipating the role of the Spirit at the beginning of Acts. Uh, the Spirit is the initiator in the birth of or the conception of Jesus. Uh, the Spirit overshadows Mary. Uh, the Spirit now fills Zechariah when uh, Mary uh, arrives. Uh, uh, there's a uh, Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit. That's in Luke one forty one. So the Spirit is active in bringing this new initiative of God into play. And here in particular, Zechariah is inspired by the Spirit to prophesy. And I think uh, it is a prophecy in the more colloquial sense that we use the term that he's speaking words about what Jesus is going to accomplish. But it's also prophecy in the in the uh, at least one of the Old Testament senses. Uh, when uh, the singers, the priestly singers, are gathered together in the temple, they're said to prophesy, and so uh, prophecy in the uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit often takes poetic or hymnic form, which is what happens to Zechariah here. He is maybe maybe he spent nine months composing this. He's been ready for this moment when he can finally speak again, uh, and he's singing it. Or maybe it's a maybe it's a uh, kind of an ecstatic utterance in the Spirit. Either way, it's a gift of the Spirit, and he's singing out what the Lord is going to do. And again, fits with what we've talked about in past episodes, that uh, the coming of the Lord is an occasion for rejoicing, an occasion for song. There's a cluster of hymns here that you don't find anywhere else in the New Testament, apart perhaps from parts of Revelation. And uh, it's all because of the coming of the, the Son by the Spirit. Think is a good precedent for um, lessons and carols, carols uh, services. Yeah, ex- explain. Oh, because just because Christmas is a time for singing. Yeah. The punctuation of the narrative with song. Yeah, and well, that's what uh, the classic lessons and carols does. So we do that every year: read, sing. I want to highlight one of the one of the things you, points you made about this, the Benedictus, the the fact that Zechariah, like like Mary, 
is reaching back to Abraham, mentions Abraham explicitly. The oath that the Lord swore to our father Abraham refers to the covenant that God made and has kept with Israel, quotes or refers to a number of prophecies. So uh, Zechariah sees the, the birth and the naming of John as the fulfillment of these hopes, particularly the hope of the coming of a new king. The Lord is visiting his people, uh, not just he's, he's visiting them with judgment and salvation, and he's visiting them by raising up uh, a Davidic king to rule over them. And he sees the birth of John as the fulfillment of those promises. So um, and I, we made this point also with the Mary's, Mary's song in uh, earlier in chapter one, that this is a, it's a song about what's happening in the history of Israel. It's not a song about merely about the individual reconciliation or restoration of, of, of sinful human beings. Uh, Zechariah talks about the forgiveness of their sins. People are going to have the knowledge of salvation, but intermixed with that, inextricable with that, is this fulfillment of promise to Abraham and the conquest over the enemies and the coming of a Davidic king. So this, the gospel that they're celebrating, the good news that they're celebrating is a public event that has ramifications. And actually, it's actually about what the Lord is doing in the history of his people and the history of the nations. It's hard to do this in a podcast, but it ought to be uh, called attention to this is a, a chiasm. Um, it's very chiastic and uh, starts off with visitation and ends with uh, the visitation from on high. Uh, you can just go on right on down. In the middle is verses 72 and 73, where uh, the Lord remembers his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham, our father. Uh, at the very center is the covenant and the oath. That Zechariah's months of silence should end with bursting forth into song and prophecy seems quite appropriate. The silence of Zechariah is in many ways something that mirrors the silence of God's spirit within history in the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New at the original appearance of Gabriel to Zechariah within the temple, we're told that John the Baptist would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, um, referencing the very end of the book of Malachi. And even within the, um, the Song of Zechariah, there are a number of allusions back to Malachi and then also beyond that to Isaiah. He takes up this great language of the Old Testament prophets, particularly Isaiah and Malachi, and connects it with the character of John the Baptist, who's knit into this greater story of the coming of God to deliver and to visit his people. And it seems as if he's drawing particularly upon the language of the dawning light, the light that's coming at a particular point. It's language that we find also within the book of Matthew, the light that dawns, the um, light that comes in the region of um, Zebulun and Naphtali by way of the sea. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for Zechariah to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the description of John the Baptist that this all ends with, again, is one that is redolent with Old Testament memory. It's the same sort of description that we see used for Christ in the book of Luke. But also, it's language that refers to Samuel 
within the book of Samuel. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. It's language that connects to Samuel, who was the first person to establish the kingdom of Israel. He was the one who anointed Saul and David. And here he's the one that's going to lead to the new day, David, the raising up of the horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, that's going to be through the ministration of this character, John the Baptist. The final detail that we have in this chapter concerns the um, upbringing of John the Baptist. He spends his time in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. He's growing, becoming strong in spirit. This is language that we have used of Samuel within the book of First Samuel, the young child Samuel. It's also language that we have used of Christ later on, and the parallels between Christ and John the Baptist have already been noted here. Perhaps one final thing to note is the association between John the Baptist and the wilderness from the very earliest age. He grows up in the context of the wilderness. The association between John the Baptist and the wilderness has already been maybe implied by the fact that he is a man in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah was a man of the wilderness. Moses was also a man of the wilderness. Within scripture, we see a series of prophets who are desert prophets that are succeeded by land prophets and changes between these prophets, transitions between these prophets on the banks of the Jordan. Already here, we have the description of John the Baptist in a way that connects him with the desert and suggests that he is like Elijah in whose spirit he comes. He is a desert prophet and Christ is the land prophet that will succeed him. That movement is from Moses to Joshua, from Elijah to Elisha, and from John the Baptist to Jesus, and perhaps also from um, Ishmael to Isaac. Ishmael's um, childhood is described in a very similar way in Genesis chapter 21, but that transition is an important one within Luke and also within the Old and New Testaments more generally. And the connection between the name of Jesus and the name of Joshua, I don't think is accidental. The name of Joshua, the name of Elisha, and the name of Jesus are all connected. And that movement from desert prophet to land prophet is a pattern that we see playing out here once again. This is part of the same story as we've been reading in the Old Testament. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.